a Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. We all love Julie Goodwin. Who could not? From her first appearance on MasterChef back in 2009, she won our hearts with her honesty, her no-fuss and low-fuss approach to food, and also the fact that she was fallible, funny, and absolutely terrified of the big challenges. But this is where it counts. She was a doer, and she conquered the impossible. She sold over half a million copies of her first book. She's opened a cooking school. She became a regular on our TV screens and a household name. But things are not always what they seem. We had a joyful, tearful and wonderful conversation about Julie and the world as it was then and as it is now. Take a listen. Julie Goodwin. <laughs> do, do you know, you? Know. it just fills me with joy. You, <laughs> As you walked into the studio, I go, Julie, I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, me too, me too. I don't know. There's some very special connection. Everybody knows you from MasterChef and winning... 2009, which was mind-blowingly successful yeah, and completely unexpected. And I don't know if you remember, but I burst into tears when uh, on national television. <laughs> I'll never forget it. I'll never of, like, forget it. like three million people when, when yeah. Mick and the boys came in. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That was my favourite bit of the whole thing was, you know, the family coming back in and yeah. it just being, wow, it, it, was, it was an incredible and extraordinary time, you know, and I still watch it. I've watched it every oh, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watch it every year and... I, I I still laugh about it, you know. That was occasionally the trophy will flash up and one of the boys will go, hey, there's your name, <laughs> Mum. And I'm like, oh, no, it's weird, right? Because <laughs> that's a long time ago now, isn't it? So it's, we're 10, oh, 11, gosh. 12 years ago. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, um, yeah, all my little boys are grown up now and they're all in their 20s. And on, they were big enough when they came on the show. Yeah. <laughs> How tall's Mick? He's like... Mick's six foot seven, so, so two metres. So he's Matt Preston, for example. Because yes. I remember when he walked in, I went... <laughs> That's not the husband I expected. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I know. We're, uh, we're you know, the long family. and the short of it. Yeah, yeah, except for me. Except for me. But, uh, yeah, they are. The Two of the boys are six foot six and then the, the short one's only six foot. So wow. he, he missed out on dad's jeans. He got a bit of mine, I think. Yeah. But it, it was very special, wasn't it? Because I think it was unexpected. I mean, certainly when you would have uh, applied for the show. In oh. fact, why did you apply? Because well, no one knew what it was. No one knew. No, I'd been watching the UK version. So we'd just built a house and we'd spent two years living in like a shed um, in the backyard while we built this house. And it was meant to only take six months and it took two years to build. And so moving in, uh, I said to Mick, you know, we're going to get Foxtel for the first time ever and, and you can watch all the sports. We're going to treat ourselves because we've lived really rough for a couple of years. And we got Foxtel and I discovered the Lifestyle Food Channel and that was the end of everything. I had a brand new kitchen. I had the Lifestyle Food Channel and I was watching UK MasterChef religiously. And I must have been boring all my friends with it too because my, my best friend, when there was a contestant call for Australian MasterChef, she said, you have to go on it. And I went to do the uh, form a few times. It was so long. And, you know, I was working in the IT business with Mick and I, I just didn't have time, didn't have time. And the very last day she said to me, 
Tasha, Naomi, she said to me, if you don't fill out that damn form, you're never allowed to talk to me about food again. Oh, whoa, okay, that's pretty serious. And and so I applied and I remember, like I sort of applied and forgot about it and a couple of months later I got a phone call from the uh, producers saying, oh, we'd like you to come to Sydney and audition and this is the date. And I looked at it on my calendar and I said, oh, that's my oldest son's first day of high school. Can I come on a different day? And they're like, uh, no, no, that's the day. That's not how TV works. <laughs> yeah, that's <is> right. <laughs> and so, and I asked my my boy, I said, Joey, listen, I, you know, I've been invited to audition for the, what I called a cooking competition. That's sort of how I thought of it. Didn't think of it as TV. And, um, but it's your first day of high school, you know, I'd love to walk you in and get the photo. And he goes, oh, do the audition, mum, it's fine. (laughs) So away I went. But, you know, in that moment, if this boy had said to me, actually, I'm a bit nervous, could you come with me to school? I never would have gone to the audition. So it's it's on those tiny little um, heads of a pin that whole lives can swivel, you know. And the auditions were very different back then. They were, I think, uh, there would have been like 2,000 people in a line, oh, like it was massive, yeah. all out Darling Harbour. Classic reality. I think we had yep. jugglers and unicyclists. Yes, and these just randos that turned <laughs> up going, "I want to be on TV." Someone turned up with a lettuce, like just to be a smarty pants. <laughs> he was in the queue near me. I'm like, I don't know how that's going to go, buddy. But uh, and and on and, the- and you were you were applying seriously because you thought cooking competition and I want to have a go. Yeah. Yep, I'd watched the UK one. It was all very civilised and British, you know. They all went yeah, home every night and, and, had, <laughs> and had a beautiful experience and they learned a lot along the way and it just looked like fun and like something I would enjoy. And then I turned up and it was like the Australian format was more like the Amazing Race meets Survivor meets, I don't know, yeah. all the reality shows and Big Brother because we were all living together. You, yeah, do you remember, and I forget details like this, it's only because you were talking about it, but the, the contestants used to eliminate themselves. Yes. So I think it only happened happened, we did it for about three weeks. I think. Or was it one? No, it was one series. It was that our was whole, whole series. series. Yeah. Yeah. That we, because if your team like, lost, we had yeah. to vote someone out. It was horrible. It was oh, bring horrible. it back. I reckon that, it, <laughs> especially with the All what's just been on, is it All Stars? Oh, no, no, no. Win. Oh, sorry. That was, that All Stars was something different, wasn't it? It was kind yes. of the same, but. Yeah, that was that was a few years ago, yeah, was, the All-Stars one. So back yeah. to win, yeah, you, they could eliminate themselves, just get rid of people they don't like. That was really weird and we that felt the strangest thing for us because we were dead serious about making it a great culinary competition. Yeah. And yeah. then all of a sudden we had this TV reality bit in where you just went, I don't like Julie, so I'm going to send her home and you'd vote. Well, that's right. And the, the problem with it was... See, Survivor is it is. That, well, well yeah. the, back in the house there were alliances and there were people that you could trust and people that you couldn't trust, so it coloured the whole experience. Oh, see, I didn't think about that. Yeah. See, I just came to work every day and <laughs> ate right. stuff. That's ate, right. I just ate myself oh, stupid. We were all living together in this house. Oh, my God, it was insane. <laughs> so if you were to... And I don't want to talk about Master for the whole time, but if you were to kind of summarise that experience for yourself, and I don't mean in like a classic kind of press way because yeah. we tend to do that. We put it in bite size. How did that sit with you being a mum and being in the family IT business and Central yeah. Coast, yeah? You live yeah, in that's Coast? right. It's still there. And then all of a sudden you just slammed into a house full of just this, like, I mean, how many different personalities were there? <laughs> Well, a few of the people had several each, so that was, that was interesting. <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, look. Living in that house was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, not having access to my family and not being able yeah, to not help tra- with the business. No traditional support mechanism. Nothing. Um, you know, not even regular phone calls, only t- twice a week. And it was 
that was the hardest part of the whole thing. Never mind the cooking or what happened in the kitchen. Yeah. It was just being away from the family. But uh, in terms of what it did did for us, you know, um, like to walk out of there and not really know what had been going on in the outside world around it and to see it on the, it was on the front page of the paper for like three days straight and, and people thought it was rigged. And so there's all this angst and upheaval and, and people recognise me at the supermarket and, God, they couldn't do it now, but I'd have people coming up and just throwing their arms around me and kissing me on the face, you know, <laughs> it's pre-COVID days. And so it, it was very strange, but at the, really we're, we're the same, you know. The, we're just the same. We're in the same house and, and we do the same stuff and I, I've got a new career, obviously, and I've had these opportunities that not and not all of them are food related, you know. I've ended up on the radio. I've, I've had all these. It's almost like um, Forrest Gump. I've just had these bizarre experiences where I've gone from, you know, just being, you know, suburban mum, small business owner. I'm I'm, I'm nominated for a silver logie. What the heck is that? It's so strange. And publishing books, which. Oh, such a privilege. You well, know. Your, your first book, how many did you sell of your first book? It was off the charts, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. It, Do you it, remember? It was about 300,000. Yeah. Um, and I remember saying to the boys at the time, I go, that is like Maggie Beer, Stephanie Alexander territory. Yeah, Isn't well, it? in that year, so you, it, it did. It outsold every other Australian author. Um, I, and I couldn't believe it. I remember I was on You can set. say that again if you want. It, <laughs> Your first cookbook <laughs> yeah. outsold every other Australian author. Yeah, not cook, not just cookbook authors. but Every author. Yeah. And I remember being on set for MasterChef Series 2 finale, I think it was, when my publisher called and I just had all my makeup done to come on in and do the finale. And she rang and she said, are you sitting down? I said, well, yes, I wasn't, but she said, but it's number one. And I just burst into tears and I ruined all my makeup. And <laughs> That's number one. So just those moments, you know, that I, I never expected when I my best friend, you know, hassled me into doing a, an online application form. It, it's It's been surreal and 11 years down the track, it's no less surreal. But why do you think people fell in love with you? Because they did. Oh. I mean, kind of hook, line and sinker. I mean, it was... One of the most successful, certainly in the first three years of MasterChef, it was the most successful mm. television program ever on Australian TV, right? Yeah. And you won the first series. Nobody knew what to expect. It was massive. But you became a household name instantaneously. Well, I think the whole show was just geared towards um, families, you know. I had I had people say to me and write me letters and all sorts of mm. stuff and say, um, my great nephew calls me from Perth after every episode and we talk it through, you know, yeah. and, and we didn't, we hardly ever used to call each other but, and, you know, people could watch it with their kids and so I think it generated some real goodwill. But for you, was it because you were a mum and people oh, maybe. could but relate to you or? I think, I think um, maybe because I fail a lot. <laughs> I stumble a lot and um, stuff shakes. things oh up and God. yeah, get the shakes. Oh my God. And, and so I think that's relatable. We were watching. We were not, not the TV. <laughs> we were just watching you. What is she doing? I, I just put that in there and stir it. <laughs> It'd be fine. Oh, and then you'd wander past and say, Oh, you're really sure you want to put that in there? I don't know if I'd do it like that. And you'd wander off again. Yeah. Hang on. <laughs> but that was a message. I mean, people have learned yeah. since. It means, yeah. no, don't put it in the pot. You know, like we would go up and say, are you sure you're going to be able to cook that in time? Which yeah. is essentially, it's never going to cook yeah, in time. <laughs> and, you, and you would stare back and go, yep, I can do it. And the puddle pie became, I think, synonymous oh. with um, yeah. f failures 
and totally. great successes on MasterChef. Didn't yeah, they? totally. I branded it a bit too well. I still get you it's still, still get brought it. up. Yeah. Do you still make it? Just out of curiosity. I haven't. No. I'm, I've. It's in my first recipe book, and I've corrected what went wrong with it. <laughs> Basically, essentially, it was just more time needed, more time. And you know what else, Gary? Is I'm the only one who got my pie out of its pie dish. Is if that right? I, yeah, everyone else's was so in maybe their that's pie why dish. you won that challenge. If I'd have left it in its pie dish, it never would have fell apart. And you never would have won because who knows what happened? It's, just, <laughs> that's it's exactly a sliding right. doors moment. I can't, I can't, um, I can't question anything that happened because it. You know the reason we loved it is because it reminded me. My mum makes a. Uh, I think I might have told you this, but she makes a lemon meringue pie. And when she says she's going to make a lemon meringue pie. It doesn't mean that you're going to get what she made last time. Yeah, It could be something completely different. And I'm sure, you know, people that cook at home recognise what we're talking about here. But sometimes it'd have a pastry base, other times it'd have like a digestive base. So we, yep. it was like a lottery. Yeah. Like we didn't know. And sometimes it would be the lemon curd would be set. Other times it'd be runny. Sometimes it'd have cream on it. Other times it'd have meringue on it. So when you put the puddle pie up, I just laughed. I just And I just thought it was going to be rubbish. And then when I ate it, there was something really weird that happened. And as a professional chef, I don't know if I've explained this to you before, but as a professional chef, it's one of those penny drop moments where you go, you know what, it actually doesn't matter what it looks like. There's a bit of you that goes, it just tastes delicious. <laughs> and then I go, but that's why I like my mum's cooking, right? Yeah. It yeah. may have been a lottery, that lemon meringue pie or whatever, you know. Yeah. But I always knew that essentially it was delicious. It's going to be nice. It's like my nan's rice pudding. Sometimes it was like soup and other times it was just like you could carve it with a hacksaw. Uh, but it was nan's rice pudding. <laughs> kill so. birds with it the yeah, following that's day. Right. Roll it into balls and chuck it out the window. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Isn't it funny? Yeah, look, and, and I think some of our, you know, best memories are wrapped up with the, the meals that we have around the table and yeah. the, the stuff that... Um, Sticks out, you know, the stuff you really hated that your mum used to cook. Like, I still can't stand Brussels sprouts because back in my day, like in the 70s and the 80s, they were huge and they were old and they had to be boiled until they were grey before you could serve them. And, yeah. oh, they must have been cheap because we got them all the time. No, horrible, <laughs> horrible. So let's t- let's talk about that. Did you, growing up, where did you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Normanhurst, so that's in the northwestern suburbs of Sydney, so very suburban area. And, um, yeah, blue-collar sort of family. Um, mum and dad both worked and mum was the main cook in the house. So on a, on a Tuesday night, though, she went off to a thing called Kilo Counters Club, which is like Weight Watchers for poor people. And she'd get all these ideas about how to serve up meals that had less calories in them. So we had some pretty damn terrible food because we were all all had her diet inflicted on us every now and again. Um, but on Tuesday night, she'd go off and, and dad would cook and he'd call it um, pasta surprise. And the surprise was, you know, the pasta might be hard or it might be just a bowl of clag or whatever. And um, yeah, I remember that Tuesday nights, I used to desperately try and get invitations to my friends' houses for dinner. <laughs> and then mum went through so a lentil burger. Else was, everyone else was was cooking better food oh, yeah. in their house than you were. <laughs> than that- my dad. Than my dad. My mum my mum did well. But what her her forte, and this is where I, I think I got got my kind of love of entertaining, is her forte was the party. And she would put on a spread and it, it always had certain things on it. So there was always um, the fruit flan, like the shortcake. Um, there was always a sherry log, which was honey snaps dipped in sherry and you'd spread cream <laughs> on them and make a log out of it. And after a few hours, it turned into like I looked a, up because I thought, I wonder what that is. <laughs> it's like a explains. boozy cake. Yeah, okay. And um, No volivants? No volivants? 
Oh, like we occasionally day. would have volivants. Because they yeah. were fancy. There were the cheese you on know, sticks. Cheese on sticks. Cheese cabanossi and those little vibrantly coloured um, onions. Yeah. Uh, mum never went to the extent of sticking it into an orange and calling it a hedgehog, though. So I'm grateful for that. <laughs> uh, always a fruit platter. Oh, cream horns. So the little pastry trumpets filled with um, jam and mock cream. Uh, yeah. So, so those are the things we so always. So how had. old were you then? I mean, were you a kid? That? Yeah, when I was a kid. And so do you remember going to bed? I mean, I, I, I do. I remember going to bed and the adults seemed to be having a great bootsy yeah. time. Yep. And you're upstairs and you could hear them laughing. And- oh, but the best part about that was getting up early the next day and just raiding the fridge. Like there'd always be a bit of strawberry shortcake left over and just, you know, put the cartoons on and stuff my face full of cream <laughs> horns. It was great. So you, were you a good girl or a naughty girl when you were little? Oh, I was painfully good. Oh, were you? Painfully good, yeah. Yeah, I didn't get in trouble till I grew up. Um, yeah, no, I, I always tried to uh, make people happy. I wanted to please people. I did well at school, got good grades. I worked hard on the homework and all that sort of stuff. And, um, yeah, so, I, yeah, I was so, a good girl. So do you still have friends from school that you have? Yeah, I think now? social media is kind of amazing. So I'm in touch with quite a few of the people I went to school with. Um, my closest circle of friends now, though, are the people that, um, live around me and have their children are, are friends with my children and, and all that sort of thing. So it's my current community. Um, but they're people like my, my best friend and her husband, I was in fifth grade with her husband, fifth and sixth grade. And, and we had our babies at the same time and our children, she's got three girls and I've got three boys and they're like cousins, you know, they bag each other out, but they're always there for each other. And, you know, so it's, it's really quite lovely. So yeah, I do have friends from my past do they ever talk to you about the kid that you were, the mum that you were, and then what you became <laughs> after MasterChef? I'm just curious. Well, we 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 joke about it. Like I, I was always a bit scattered and hopeless. So in the morning, um, if it was book week or if it was a mufty day or whatever it was, my girlfriend would ring me, you know, on the curly corded landline and say, don't forget to send the boys in plain clothes today and give them a dollar <laughs> coin each. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Boys. Get changed. <laughs> and she still does that now. So she'll still remind me of certain things that are going on. And um, and this is the one who, who made me into master. Right, okay. But uh, what happened was, you know, all my friends gave me a hard time, like, you know, don't come out of there with a swelled head and all this sort of stuff. And, um, you know, I'm like, feel free to clip me across the ear if I do. But we, we're all still the same. I still go to their place for dinner. They still come around. We still, you know, if I'm having a, a thing, it's kind of potluck. Everyone brings something. It's 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 not changed um, at its heart um, and in its essence, life hasn't hasn't changed, yeah. you know, which I don't know. That's important to me. What, what did you aspire to be when you were at school? Do you, do you remember that? And When I was young, I wanted to be a doctor because my mum had lost her dad to cancer when she was only 16 years old. So I decided I was going to cure cancer. And then I saw some documentary had blood on it and I nearly fainted. And I thought, okay, well, that's not for me. (laughs) Uh, I was interested in journalism and uh, I was interested in law, but what I went into was teaching. So I started to train as a a teacher. So what made you do that? Uh, Well, I think... Because that's a switcheroo. Is there a point where you just go up and do that? Well, I think... I can't, I'm not sure. I think what I ended up knowing is that I had an affinity for, for youth work and that's what I ended up doing as being a youth worker. And, um, yeah, so I went from, I, I didn't finish my degree. I just wasn't happy at university. It didn't, didn't suit me. And Why, why, why was that? Uh, 
look, my school, I went to Hornsby Girls High School and it was kind of being a, you know, you're a big fish in a little pond kind of thing. And I went to university and there were just billions of people there. I didn't know anybody. Nobody knew me. None of my friends were there um, at the same time as me. And I, I just felt really lost. And there were all these um, sort of factions of, you know, outraged, protesty people. And I just didn't find my place. So I did about a year and a half of my education degree. Was, it, was there a moment where you went, no, nah, that's... Yeah, totally. I went home to mum and dad and said, I'm, I'm not going back. And what was the trigger? Do you remember it? I think it was just a walking out one day and not seeing anyone to say, see you tomorrow to, and just feeling, and actually thinking, I don't think I've used my voice today. I think I've sat in lectures and I've, you know, gone and had lunch and I've sat in more lectures and I've gone to the library and I'm, I'm leaving for the day and I don't think I've used my voice. And that for me is really unusual. <laughs> Ask my husband. <laughs> um, and I just thought this is, this is not how I want to be spending my, my time. I, and I guess, um, at that point, I thought, well, being a teacher wasn't so important to me that I would stick that out for another sort of two and a half years. Mm. And yeah, went home, told mum and dad. Mum was devastated because I was going to be the first degree qualified person sort of in our family. It turns out my little sister went on and did that. But um, yeah, she said, but I said, I'll go back next year. I'll just take the rest of the year off. And she said, you won't go back next year. I said, <laughs> it's a better chance I'll go back next year than I'll go back next Monday, mum. So... <laughs> That's it. Yeah, and away I went and I got different jobs and ended up um, doing youth work and um, travelling around Australia with a singer-songwriter, children's singer-songwriter, doing environment, peace and justice workshops. We were talking about recycling before it was a thing. We were talking about the hole in the ozone layer and how to care for the earth. Uh, and I'm talking 30 years ago. Right. So it was, she was very cutting edge, <laughs> this lady, and did that for a while and then I ended and up did, working. And, and you obviously loved this. This was oh, something yeah. that you yep. enjoyed. Yep, yep. What, what, what connected you to it? Just working with children, it's, I don't know, and you'd know that when you deal with adults who've got their, their mind is set and they're quite hard to um, influence, you know, but with children, if you can get in with them nice and early and, and even adolescents, you know, and uh, show them a, a, a better way of thinking about themselves or a better way of um, treating other people or a better way, that you've got a real opportunity there to make a difference. And, and so I really... Really loved that. And I did end up moving from there because it was a travelling role. When I got mm. married, I moved on to, um, I applied for a job as a senior youth worker at um, a detention centre. And what I didn't know was that that kind of youth work was fairly different to the other kind of youth work that I've been doing, which involved music and puppets and clowns and things. Um, so I went into a maximum security juvenile detention centre and the word, the term youth worker meant warden essentially. So, and I was the only female um, amongst all these men doing this job and some of the men weren't real happy about this, you know, because I was just this sort of girl going in there doing this job that uh, they like to think involved being very rough and tough. But, you know, there were keys and lockdowns and had to count knives and, um, you know. But again, just the opportunity to be around some of these kids and they are kids and talk to them about their lives. And it's, you know, there, there are some of these kids, they'd go to make their phone call home and, you know, they're once a week sort of thing. And their whole family, like mum's in Long Bay, auntie's in Long Bay, uncles, like they're, they're all in jail. It's like, where else is this boy going to be than in a detention centre? There's nowhere else. 
there's no one home, you know. So it, it was um, a real eye-opener. It really um, was a side of life I'd never seen. Do you remember a personality from back then, a person from back yeah. then that stays with you? Oh, yeah, yeah. My favourite um, is was a boy who, uh, an Indigenous boy, and as it is now, massively unbalanced um, number of Indigenous kids in there as, as opposed to non-Indigenous. And this, But this boy, he was so high-spirited. Now, this was the maximum secure unit for the state, so all the worst offenders were there, all the stuff you'd seen in the news. Like I, there, were, there were kids there that had done these horrendous things, but this boy was there because he was a bit of a management problem. He had a bit of a bit too much spirit, I think, for everybody. Uh, and he had he had been incarcerated for running a shopping trolley into a Payless supermarket and stealing some sardines, right? But he just kept getting escalated until he ended up in this maximum secure unit. And he'd be cleaning, you know, he'd be vacuuming away, and just he'd he'd yank off the tube off the vacuum cleaner and just start playing the didgeridoo. <laughs> uh, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. And I, I I I just laughed at him all the time. He would get his cup of tea and he'd put in sugar and he'd count one, two, three, four, five, six, and he'd get the seventh and just like sprinkle oh, just maybe a quarter of a teaspoon off the seventh and that was how he felt. So I, I, I became very, very fond of him. Um, yeah. But so many sad stories in there. There's, there's probably a reason, I'm, you know, I'm not qualified, but things like that, you know, putting that little bit of the seventh, it's yeah. control and it's ceremony, It's there's oh. a lot of... Reasons for that, isn't it? It's kind of all you got. That's all you got control there, over. It's probably a bit too much to ask, I suppose, because that's a long time ago. But there were there observations back then that you, you look at that you can relate to today, or that you think maybe not enough has changed, or much uh, has changed. I can tell you that working there really um, informed how I parented my own boys. So what I observed in that place is that very few people are actually evil in their core. There are a couple of the guys in there that frightened me um, because I, I couldn't see anything other than this darkness in them. Only a couple out of all the ones I dealt with. Uh, the rest of them were just did dumb things with dumb people, you know, and so many of them had just followed their peers into these situations that they then couldn't get out of. So it became really important to me. And they used to say to me, you know, because I, I was pregnant. Um, while I was there with my first baby and they'd say, oh, I bet you hope you don't have a boy, miss, because he'll end up like us. And they were like, free. But um, it was really important to us, to Mick and I, to make sh- sure that we had um, involvement in their friendship groups and stuff like that. And we actually set out to, when we built this house that we moved into right prior to MasterChef, it was all about creating a space that they wanted to bring their mm. friends to rather than them having no privacy and nothing to do and having to go outward to, to be around their peer group. Um, just because I, I was I was frightened of if they fell in with the wrong crowd, I, I could see what could happen yeah. and how easily it could happen and how these kids with good hearts could end up incarcerated because they've just done dumb things. Yeah. You know, that have hurt people, really harmed people. So I did I did the same thing when Jenna was born, I had this preoccupation with being involved in the friendship group because when I grew up, we grew up as a little pack of girls and boys and there were five girls in that group and three of those girls died from drug-related issues and the third one only died recently. And that was, you know, from years of just poor decisions. First one died at 23 
dear. and then someone at 40 and then someone recently. And, and I asked this friend of mine who lives over here in Australia now, I said, why, why were we okay? And she said, just remember there was a little separation and we stuck together and mm. they didn't. And I think it was that. We yeah. kept ourselves safe. Yeah. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Well, there's a time in their lives where you as their parents are nowhere near as important to them as their friends are. Yeah. There's that time in their lives and hopefully you navigate them through that and you get them back at the end of it. And and I'm just experiencing that now. So my boys are now um, 21, 22 they and 24. They come back to their mums, don't they? They do indeed. They do indeed. They're all at home still. I've had, I've had yeah, one go why. and come back. And, uh, well, it was my goal. <laughs> it was why I like to cook nice food. It's like this is my evil plan. Yeah. I shall have them Feed at home. Them forever. Yeah, that's right. No yeah. Brussels sprouts or different kinds of Brussels sprouts? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. Because I, I don't enjoy them, so I don't cook them. They, the smell of them just puts me in a bad place. I've tried. I've got a recipe for them, which, you know, other people like, but I, I don't do but them. you have to steer clear of them. That's, that's okay. So you went from that. Yep. You, you were pregnant. You'd already met, married Mick, I presume. Yes, that's right. And then so where did you jump to next? Because when we met, so when you came onto MasterChef, you were in the family IT business. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So and we were going, why from IT? Yeah. Like, why the hell? We were looking at you going, mum... IT, you know, growing family, why the hell would you want to change direction? Yeah. So how did you working in the family business? That came about because, um, you know, we had the three little boys and Mick uh, was his company that he worked for had moved down to Sydney and he wasn't happy there anymore. And so we decided to start our own business. And so I was sort of assisting him. I mean, you should have seen, by the time I went on MasterChef, there were half a dozen or so guys working with us. And they thought it was hilarious that it come up with me, Julie Goodwin, IT consultant. <laughs> no, I, I know how to turn things off and turn things on again, um, but IT consultant I So it was not. a loose description. Yeah, oh, very loose. <laughs> I, I did, I, you know, I did orders and I did HR stuff and I organised the Christmas yeah. party and all that kind of, all the fun things. Um, but that, that was my role. And um, by the time we went on MasterChef, we'd moved into a premises out of our lounge room and we, we had a few, a few guys on, but everybody knew that. I had no idea about IT. So I was just there as all the other bits and pieces. Yeah, so working hard and three growing oh, yeah. boys and, yep. you know, a business. How long have they been, how long have the business been going up till that point? Uh, about seven years. Okay, so it's a good about stretch. To, yeah, it's about to be 18 this year, our yeah. business. So, oh, 19 this year. Goodness, flies. <laughs> and there's a dozen of them now. So, um, and they work in an office building and my kitchen's underneath. So I've got this beautiful space yeah. uh, and we make really nice smells and all the guys upstairs get jealous. <laughs> so you were, so this was mixed business. Yep. It's family business, but it's mixed. He's the driver. He's, he's the IT so the, guy. So the question is when MasterChef hit and your success boomed, all of a sudden you're the driver. How did that change the <laughs> relationship between Mick as the breadwinner, you the mum, and then all of a sudden like, hey, hey, baby, <laughs> I just sold 300,000 books. <laughs> Well, you know, we've always seen ourselves as a team and everything we do, we do together and we're always um, making sure that we're aligned and heading for the same destinations together. Mm. And so if you, if you want the same things as each other, then everything you do is, is for each other and for your family. And, and that was, it was kind of a, after MasterChef, things were so crazy and there were so many decisions and opportunities and all that, that we actually came up with a framework 
just a filter that we had to run things through. And it was, is it good for our family? Does it move us towards our goals? And does it feel right? And if it was a yes to all those things, then I would accept the opportunity. And, and Mick's just been a star. If I've travelled for months and, and other things, you know, going off into the, the jungle and I'm a celebrity and I was away for, you know, five weeks there. Yeah. And um, he, does, he's he, just... does he have a pasta surprise like, <laughs> like your dad? Like do the boys do the boys go? Oh God! <laughs> what are you doing? You're going away. No, they're all they're all pretty nifty in the kitchen. But it, that does remind me of being away from them during MasterChef, and he sent me a newspaper article that the local paper had come and written, and they'd photographed the four of them in our kitchen at home, and they'd quoted him as saying, you know, they they were asking how are you getting on, you know, for food without your mum, and uh, Mick said, oh no, we're great, we're cooking and it's fancy too. It's not like two-minute noodles. We're doing chicken tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, it made me laugh. It was beautiful. Don't don't forget, and you probably know this already, and it surprised me every time I remind myself of it, but people's idea of cooking is wildly different to, say, me as a professional chef. Yeah. And my idea of cooking, like they go, yeah, I buy a a chicken tonight sauce and bake the chicken and pour it over the top. That's cooking. And that's okay. I mean... I'm not criticising. Whatever it. feeds you, your family. If, you, if you're busy and you need to feed, me, feed mm. your family. But I, I have such, you know, like I, my standards are so high. <laughs> yeah. I feel, you know, terrible if, I, if I'm not making something from scratch. Yeah. And yet Mandy will, if I'm away for a long time, I'll ring Jenna and I'll go, hi, how are you going? You know, chat, chat, chat. What did you have for dinner? And she go, oh, yeah, we had meatballs. And then I'll talk to Mandy and say, oh, you made meatballs. And then I can hear Jenna in the background going, no, she bought them. <laughs> You know, like from the shop down the road. Yeah. So all of a sudden, the local shops and stuff know when I go away. Oh, because, that's funny. Yeah. She's buying the meatballs. She's <laughs> buying the meatballs. What if you curry meatballs Aye. lasagna? Nothing wrong with that. I love making this series, and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message, because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. What was the biggest thrill from that period of MasterChef and immediately afterwards, you know, like the height of success? Oh, look, I remember it as all being quite a surreal time. It all just felt surreal. So I've, I've gone back to my house. Actually, probably one of my favourite moments was watching the finale with a bunch of my friends and family in my house because obviously I hadn't told anyone. And so for the couple of weeks, two and a half weeks it was between filming the finale and it going to air, we weren't allowed to talk to anyone on that. So I'd go to the supermarket and people would see me and assume that I'd been eliminated because it was still on TV. And they'd come up to me and go, oh, never mind, darling, you did us proud, well done. And i go, oh, thanks. <laughs> but the night um, of the finale, only um, my sister knew because she just, I opened the door and she just looked in my face and went, yes, I knew it. <laughs> what? <laughs> but, no, you know, my friends didn't know anything. And so they're watching it. And I remember as you guys were putting your scores up and one of my friends, so we had to be in two different rooms because there was too many of us. One of my friends was so loud and I just hear him in the other room just going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> the neighbours are going to call the cops in a minute. Uh, and So that was thrilling and that was beautiful. And just the strangers and the stories that people share with me, has it's been an incredible privilege, yeah. incredible privilege. So over the years and yeah. coming forward to this point. Still happens. Just yeah. people's buy-in and love of you, Julie Goodwin. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very humbling and sometimes... Um, uh, yeah, a little like, he's up. You know, you, you go through something like that and I've had it described to me as, um, oh, it's like intruder syndrome or something where I, I'd finished MasterChef and then all of a sudden people would go, oh, well, you know how to make this. And I'd be like, I've never made that in my life. You know, there was um, skill attributed to me that I didn't necessarily have and it made me feel like I was faking something or that I'd tricked somebody or something. And so th- that was a bit hair-raising and I still sort of feel that way. It's like, oh, Julie, you'd know all about how to make these, you know, cannelais from Bordeaux. And I'd be like, oh, I've eaten one. <laughs> you know, it's um, – so, yeah, I, I, but I'm always sort of striving to learn more yeah. and more. And that, that's been – I mean, I've got in my bag – I was reading – I came down on the train and I was reading a book about cheese. Uh, you know, I just – it's so fascinating to me. Everything about it is fascinating to me and the science behind food and everything like that. So the more I can learn about it, the, it it's yeah, just, it's, it's, a, it's truly a passion. And you it's know? limitless. It doesn't matter oh. what kind of chef you are, professional yep. or otherwise, yep. amateur cook, whatever it is, it's limitless. It is. And sort of every, I mean, everyone's jumped on the sourdough bandwagon mm. since COVID and we have too. And so I love it because Mick's just fascinated by it. And he's like, oh, that one didn't get the lift. What do you think it was, Jules? Do I need to slap it around a bit more? <laughs> you know? So it's uh, it's lovely. I looked at Instagram this morning. I got a friend, school, this other school friend, the one of the two remaining oh, girls. Yep. I just, uh, she's in California and she uh, posted her sourdough this morning. And I had a little <laughs> moment where I went, oh dear. And I texted her and said, I can send you a link if you'd like. Because <laughs> <laughs> she just went, she just sent flat, tasteless, Blah, blah, blah. And I just went, well, don't post it then. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Don't post the disasters. <laughs> oh, anyway. funny. So on the flip side of that, what what has been the downside of all of that? Because we see all the sparkly, shiny stuff. Yeah. And then recently, and a shock to me, everything's different now. Yes. Well, it's funny because, you know, especially back all that time ago, um, you may or may not remember, I was fairly emotional um, through that. No, I never noticed. <laughs> um, behind the scenes, my nan was on a very steep downhill slope and my mother-in-law as well. So my beautiful nan passed away five days after the finale went to air and my mother-in-law a week and a half after that. So that was going on in our lives in the background. And so when MasterChef was over... And all these other commitments were coming. So it was a, a time of incredible high, but also terrible grief. So that that was quite hard to to balance and to deal with. And I think in a lot of ways I, I pushed a lot of that aside because in my mind, if I didn't grab hold of these opportunities that were coming my way, they might disappear in 12 months' time when the next series came on and the next person came along. And uh, I, I may, that may be it. You know, I may just go back to working at Loyal IT and that was it. So I, I really did too much um, and accepted too much. And I found myself back in that position only for the past few mm. years too, where I was doing a radio show. But I'd started my kitchen. It had only been going for a few months when I accepted a role on Breakfast Radio. And Breakfast Radio is a full-time job. It's not just three hours in the morning. It's it's yeah. a lot of work and it takes your evening as well because you've got to go to bed really early. And um, so 
So, I've, but explain that for people who are listening. Because actually my wife said the same thing to me the other day. She said something about Jackie O. And I said, you know, it's a really tough gig, right? Yeah. Because you, you, you're getting up at four, what are you getting four up at? Four o'clock in the morning. Yep. Um, in you're the living a different life. You're like, you're like a baker. Yes. You're darting in the shadows, really, yep. aren't you? Totally. And I would head from there um, to my kitchen, but by the mid-afternoon your brain's just grinding gears, you know. It's mm. And so my kitchen was suffering. I wasn't giving it the attention it needed. So financial um, worries are, te- are terribly corrosive thing in a person. Uh, you know, I'm sure most people know that. And um, so I just, I wasn't doing anything as well as I wanted to be. And even even on the radio, they'd say, okay, we, we're going from the studio, we're going to go and film the Happiness Project, we're going to go and film this and we're going to, you know, and I'd say, well, I have to, I have to run from there, you know. So I felt like I was rushing that and I wasn't giving the time and attention to my kitchen and it all just built up and built up and built up and it nearly killed me. It, I just crashed. Um, I was doing too much and I wasn't feeling good about myself or about anything. I wasn't achieving anything that I wanted to. So, uh, yeah. That, how, how was this, how did this manifest itself? To, for radio, you can't sort of turn up tired and sort of muddle through your morning. You've got to, you've got to be switched on, ready to laugh, ready to talk. There's no sort of gaps between the conversation, you know, you can't sort of sit and think about things. You've just got to be switched on. And so I would bring that, but then come nine o'clock, I'd feel like my muscles couldn't even arrange themselves into a smile, you know. And by the time I got home to my family, I had nothing for them, nothing. I had no energy. I didn't laugh at anything they said. I didn't feel like cooking dinner. It was just um, an absolute drain of energy and joy. I, I just, I lost my enthusiasm for everything mm. and just everything I was driving to or going to, I just felt like, oh, God, I wish this day was over, you know. And it was just a very dispiriting place to be. It's not It's not who I am normally. I normally approach things with great excitement. And if I can't do that, then why am I approaching it at all? But you've always had this, you know, um, nervous energy. And I suppose even some of the things you've said, there's mm. little anxiety in some things. So what's yeah. different about nervous energy or being worried about something or anxious about something versus feeling yeah like that well anxiety <clears throat> when it when it gets more and more serious it starts to impact how you behave you know and um for me it became really physical as well so i think I kept denying what my brain was trying to tell me, and so it just—I just fell apart physically. I, uh, my skin went to hell. I had sores on my head and ulcers in my mouth. I had my guts were in a state, and um, I—I just—I was shaking, and that was frightening to me. I was shaking so hard that I couldn't put food in my mouth. You know, it would fall off onto the plate, and uh, and the other thing that really frightened me—and this is only just coming back—is I couldn't read. I'm a big reader. I love to read books. I read of a night. I read on holidays. I'll get through, you know, a book a day when I'm on holidays. And I couldn't read more than a paragraph. I, I couldn't make myself concentrate. And that scared me. It, it That was, I, I'm losing my mind. I'm actually losing my brain here. And, um, yeah, it just, I, I just couldn't see how to get better. And eventually I thought, look, I've got to give up something here. And so I gave up the radio, but it was too late. I was already, I was already out of control. I was just spiralling. Is it 
who did you give it up? Did Mick say, hey, you need to give it up? Did he talk to you about There's too many questions. Did, <laughs> yeah. he, did he talk to you about it first? Was he oh, the one that we, said, hey? Yeah, we talked it through. Um, and he, he's always, you know, whatever you think is right. And I, I didn't want to – that sense of obligation that you have to people is so strong. And we were building this thing and we were doing well in the surveys and everyone was really excited. And to me it felt like I'd be letting every single person in the team down and also – the listeners, and I just had this sense of obligation weighing on me really heavily. But then I also had a business which um, supports other people's families and, um, you know, that I've got to pay off, you know. I can't just walk away from that. And so it just the weight of obligation was was too much and I sort of said to Mick, something has to give because at the moment it's me and my health and I'd been to doctors and seen different people and, and they all said, <laughs> you, you've got to stop something, you you not you can't live like this, mm. and um, actually, one lady said you you need to stop something or you're going to die. <laughs> it, it had a ring of truth to it, and so I did. I stopped the radio, um, but I was just in a place by that stage where I, I couldn't just say, "Okay, dust off and keep going." And so it, it just um, it got to a point where I I just felt like I couldn't go on at all, and uh, yeah. How do you just how do you describe that? Did you describe that to Mick, for example? Because when you don't suffer from depression or mm. have any mental health issues, I think the hardest thing, and I have this in yeah. my family, and I don't. I say, oh, you could, yeah, but it's the sun shining, and yeah. you got two <laughs> arms and two legs. Do and a I, bit of exercise, <laughs> and everything will be all right. But that's yeah. not how it works. It's not, and it's it's kind of embarrassing, you know, because I am a grateful person and a um, a positive person, and and. I, I look around and I see how hard some people have it in their lives and so it makes me feel guilty to say I'm not coping because I should be. I should be coping, I should be happy, I should be all of these things and yet there's something in my head that's just saying this, what's the point in getting up? What's the point in doing anything? And so it's it's guilt about feeling that way um, as well as the sort of all the physical sickness that I was feeling that... Um, it, it all just piles up and I, and I just thought I cannot see a way out of this. I, mm. I can't see a way out of this. And it, it, I just couldn't see a long-term future. I couldn't figure out how to how to fix anything. And it was despair is what it was. It was just utter despair. And I felt like I was at the bottom of a really deep hole and there were no footholds and no handholds and I could not crawl out of it. And I just wanted to curl up in the bottom of the hole and go to sleep. Mm. And that was it. So I, I don't know if that describes it for everybody who experiences depression, but for me it was like that. It was like being in the dark and being weighted down and just barely being able to move without some kind of anguish. Um, and that's when, yeah, I was taken to the hospital and, um, yeah, they kept me there for quite a while. Mm. How long were you in for? Six weeks. Six weeks. They said, uh, like when when I went to this psychologist, he said, uh, a psychiatrist it was at the hospital, and he said, you need inpatient care. And I'm like, well, I can't. I've got a class on at the kitchen. I've got mm. to go back to the radio in two weeks. And I'll go, yeah. It was during the holidays, the January holidays. I'm like, I can't go as an inpatient. And, and I've sort of said to me, can I? And he sort of said, it feels right to me. And I've sort of gone, oh, holy crap. 
And he said, I said, well, how long for? And I'm thinking, oh, he'll say a day or two. And he said, it's going to be probably two weeks. Two weeks! <laughs> of course, I went in there and I was there for six. But they it, they took a lot of time. They put me on medication. They, um, you know, put me into better sleep habits and, and you know, had to do all this group therapy and individual therapy and all that sort of stuff. And slowly, surely, you know, gave me the tools that I needed, you know, the little handholds that I needed to start to climb up mm. out of that hole. And, um, you know, it's not linear. It's it's kind of a wavy line, but there's more up waves than down ones now. So, mm. yeah, a lot better. Because it's not, um, I always remember some people still have the attitude that, oh, it's, it's silly. You're being mm. silly. Mm. You know, like I've heard older people say, we didn't have this back when I was younger. We just used to get on with things. Yep, and probably suffered terribly while they were doing it. Um, My family didn't really buy into the whole um, mental illness, depression, other than obviously, you know, very, very visibly mentally ill people. But the whole idea of depression and anxiety was just mind over matter, you know, pull your socks up. You don't know how good you've got it. Exactly. Blah, blah. And uh, it wasn't until my nan, my beautiful nan, who's strong, been through the depression, been through the wars, just a real happy, beautiful lady, um, she got macular degeneration. So she lost her eyesight and she got um, terrible carpal tunnel in her hands. So she lost her eyesight and her hands at the same time. She'd only just got a little scooter to get around on and she just, it was like she shut down. And I said to my mother, because mum said, we've, we've, We've come to see Nan and I don't think she's got out of her chair all day. I said, Mum, she's got, I said, open a dictionary and look up depression and you'll see her photo. And Mum took her to the doctor and within two minutes in there, the doctor said, she's severely depressed and we need to get her medicated. Mm. And that's really the first time my family acknowledged. And and what Mum said to me was, and Nan's not putting that on. Nan's never put anything like that on. If the doctor says she's depressed, she's really got it. <laughs> so there's that whole thing that it's it's sort of feeling sorry for yourself. But, but until her mother got it and she said, oh, she's not feeling sorry for herself. She's sick. And I was like, yeah, that's. <laughs> so, so now for you, is it a number of strategies yeah. that you yep. follow? And, Absolutely. Can, and can and we, when I don't, okay. <laughs> I'm in trouble again. So uh, oh, things that don't come naturally to me, like putting aside time for self-care. And it, sound, it's even, it sounds silly, but it's necessary. Um, you just have to take time out of thinking about everything else that's going on and stop down and say, <clears> well, I'm going to read a book for a while or I'm going to do a drawing or I'm going to um, paint my fingernails or whatever it is. And even my doctor said to me, now, if you decide to paint your toenails, it's not self-care if you're going somewhere where people are going to see your toenails. It's only self-care if you're the only person who's <laughs> going to see your toenails. I'm like, oh, my God. Um, and exercise is really important. Um, I mean, my diet's always been been good. Um, sleep as well. It's so easy just to get in the habit mm. of sit up, watch TV, get the screen in your brain and, and race all night. Um, so those are, those are important strategies and, and also monitoring self-talk. So that little voice inside you that says things to you um, is, it can either be really positive or it can be incredibly damaging. And sometimes the things that I hear myself say inside my head, I think that would never come out of my mouth to another human being. But I'll say it inside my head. Yeah. You know, like something, I'll do something simple. I'll take a wrong turn. I go, oh, you 
such an idiot. Mm. You know, the idea of me saying that to, if Mick took a wrong turn, mm. I'd never, never speak to anyone like that the way I allow myself to, to talk. So monitoring that is a really important one as well. Yeah. So. Because I was surprised when I asked you, would you like to come and do the podcast? Because I didn't know where you were at and what you were doing. That yeah. You said, yeah, I'll come in and yeah. have a chat. So how are you re-engaging with your fans and your, <laughs> is it right to say your past life? Because at the moment the business is closed. But It is at the moment. Yep, we're on the way. We're going to reopen. Possibly. Oh, you are? Yeah. Yep, okay. we are. We are. So um, fortunately we've, we, haven't, we haven't stopped being busy, so we've been... Yeah. you know, refurbishing things and doing all sorts of stuff. Um, so in terms of keeping in touch with everybody, um, I put out a statement um, when I was in the hospital just because I'd been, I'd disappeared, you know, off the radio. So there were lots of people saying, where are you and all mm. this. So I, I decided to make it public rather than just tiptoe around with fear that someone would find out my private life. I thought, oh, well, I'm not, everything's bloody public now. I might as well just talk about it and then I don't have to feel frightened that people are going to find anything out. Um, so I've gone back to making, I've made some little videos. You know, my son's a filmmaker, so he's been helping me with that. Um, just little bits of social media. And next month we're going to restart classes. So I, I get a little stab in my stomach of um, that, just that anxiety at the idea of standing up in front of classes again. It's, um, you know, it's, I haven't done it for six months, uh, for more than six months. Gosh, what a year it's been. <laughs> it's so it's strange. Half of us have forgotten most of it anyway because of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so we can't even, I think the year's done. I know. You know. It's a, it's so weird. Like, I came out of hospital. We were meant to go to Canada. It's our silver wedding anniversary this year. That's been and gone. I was in hospital while we had that, so yay. Um, it's, Happy anniversary. Yeah, darling. that's right. Uh, we both turned 50 a bit later this year as well, so we we're going to do this big month-long trip yeah. to Canada, which obviously has been cancelled. And I knew it was going to be a strange year because I spent the first six mm. weeks of it in hospital and then we were going to have a month away. And it's like, geez, I, I know I needed to slow down. I hope I didn't universe that for the whole world. <laughs> I, think <we laughs> I didn't, needed it didn't really level. need it to be a global pandemic. But, um, yeah, so it's just been bizarre. And to come out of that and the irony of giving up my radio job and then my kitchen had to close, yeah. uh, I've gone from ha having too much on to sort of going, I think I'm unemployed. I think I'm unemployed. <laughs> um, so, yeah. But is, but is that a bad thing? I mean, I'm, I can only relate to it myself <laughs> in terms of, say, you know, giving up MasterChef. And, yeah. you know, for everybody it was a shock, but obviously yep. for the three of us it had been some time coming. You know, we'd, we'd done it for a long time. And you, I think for me I'd always promised Mandy that if I didn't love it, and I yeah. mean love it, yeah. like love it, that, that job deserves someone that loves it every day. And if you don't love it every day, don't do it anymore. You did it for, what, 11? 11 years, yeah. 11 years. About 14 seasons. Series, seasons. Yeah. I mean, but there's, there's still that thing, and, you know, I I don't suffer from depression. I, I don't get anxious about things like this. But I have to remind, my dad is a good kind of rock, you know, because he'll go, the simplest things are the most rhewarding. And you go, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, like yeah. growing rhubarb. <laughs> I mean, who cares? But actually it is. Yeah. You know, yep. the, the, the kind of pleasure of making your own coffee or, yeah. you know, doing just things that you don't need people to praise you for. Yeah. Because you get locked into people go, oh, you're not posting on Instagram. 
It's a okay. greedy beast, that social media. It, but it is, right? Yeah. So you, I, I understand from my perspective that is hard to not re-engage with at the same level. I don't need that. It's yeah. okay. Yep. So for you, the question would be at what level do you feel you can happily re-engage and continue doing what you love? Well, I think that's a question for the well, ages, Gary. I think it's an ongoing thing. But no, I I like like what you're saying, and I'm sure a lot of people have come to a bit of a conclusion like this. Is that some the simple things are beautiful? We've just got chickens again, and I call myself the Ugg boot farmer because I go out every morning in my Ugg boots and feed the chooks and collect the eggs. And you know, on the way back past the lemonade tree, I pick a couple of lemonades for me and for for Mick to have for his lunch. And you know, it's just. There's something so wholesome about that stuff and and nourishing and good for your heart. Mm. And and then you go and do something on, you know, social media, which for me is an overwhelmingly positive experience. But then every now and again someone puts the boot in and it's astounding how much that boot hurts. Mm. You can have a thousand positive comments and then someone just does something nasty and that's what Sort of grinds away yeah. at you, and and so yeah, I, I'm not one who I'm not going to sort of say not at this point. I mean, stay tuned. That I, I want to get off social media and just unplug from it. There's certainly, I think, a lot of benefit in allocating time to unplug and to not be aware of it. And I'm actually reading um, a book called Phosphorescence by Julia Baird, and she talks about. Um, time in nature and about how important that is and the scientific studies that have been done about, you know, people who can see green out their windows and um, their levels of of their mental health, their intelligence, their uh, lack of violence, their all these things um, and how much it it makes you happier. So, you know, those are things to be conscious of. Looking at somebody's beautiful photos on your phone is not the same as going for a little walk through the bush. Yeah. It's a, it's an immersive thing. Well, it's, a, it's a, you know, having kids. I mean, my yeah. daughter's 19 now, but getting her through oh, school goodness. and yeah. year 12 and social media for a 53-year-old, that's because you don't relate to it in the same way. Yeah. That was really tough for us mm. as parents because you're like, disengage, get off it. It's not real. Yeah. The, the, you know, the selfie, yep. sun shining, you know, I'm <laughs> having filters. a gorgeous, I'm having a gorgeous life in yeah. reality is I just took that picture in a moment, yeah. but the rest of my day was shit. It's incredible, isn't it? So it's a step at a time? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Oh, a hundred. And cooking and, school back open. Yes. And, and and doing some new and different things, you know, but we're going to do a Love Local Thursdays restaurant um, where we're supporting all the providers and growers around our kitchen, you know, and yeah, just trying to... Um, just reconnect with the community. Yeah. That's that's what's important to me now. It's more important to me, and this is, I guess, why part of the reason it, it was kitchen, not radio, that I ended up going with is that my immediate community is, is what's really important to me, my family and and the local people and the area that I live. I'm very committed to, um, you know, and that's where I want to be and that's what I want to do. And, you know, during this time I've had the best fun I've been making cheese and I've been making, um, reading up all about charcuterie and, and doing terrines and all this kind of stuff. And we do now TGIF platters that people come and collect with, um, you know, cheeses and homemade breads and dips and meats and all this sort of stuff on it. And it's just been fun. You know, it's been pottering around in the kitchen, Gary, you know yeah. what that means. It's, yeah. it's nice to not just have the time to do it, but to make it what I have to do, you know, so that 
I can feel justified in pottering around the kitchen because <laughs> it's my living. Yeah. <laughs> so, but in, in saying that, it's it's the same for me. I posted something on Instagram the other day only just because, and I wasn't going to post it. And it's a walking beach at our dog beach um, oh, near yeah. where we live, and we walk that beach, hail, hail rain or shine, and yeah. it's our beach when it's raining, yep. you know, because no one else is out. And I love that, but for a long time, I've always needed to get away from that beach because I've got to go and do something else. Yes. There's pressing, urgent stuff yep. that I've got to get on with my day and it's still in my head. It's, it's, I'm having days where now where I, that day I took the picture, Mandy said to me, I think we should be getting back. And I go, really? Mm. Like what have we got to get back for? I'm just yeah. curious. I've got to do those recipes or I've got to do that. But that, that can, honestly, that can wait. That can wait. And I actually did something this morning where I get constant requests for stuff and I've only done it a couple of times in recent months where I've gone, thank you so much for thinking of me, mm. um, but I think I'll give that one a miss this time. Yeah. That's it's that powerful. Little, it's yeah. that little moment, isn't it, where you choose to just say yes because that's the kind of person you are. Yep. You're a, you're a cook <laughs> and you're a foodie and you're, you're and a feeder yep. and you're a giver yeah. and you just want to say yes and you keep saying yes and it very easily... You empty your cup out and you've got nothing left for the yeah. people that matter. So. Well, I'm very excited to see what you're <laughs> going to do next. And, you know, I, I've always said to every single MasterChef contestant, and it's only advice just purely in that little, I'm yeah. not trying to give life advice, <laughs> but I go, they go, oh, I think I should open a restaurant. I think I, just do whatever makes you happy because it's yep. a tough biz. Yep. You know, it's a tough industry. It's very emotional because people... Oh, it's personal. It's very yeah. personal. Yeah. It's not like making a widget, you know. It's no. a different thing. <laughs> yeah. And you're feeding them and it's instant gratification, but it's also the opposite side of that. Very can be very destructive. And I go, mm. you just got to do what you love. Yeah. So I'm staying tuned to see what you do. And hopefully that okay. cooking school is exactly what you want to do. And if you're experimenting with charcuterie and cheese, that's the next book that's coming up because that's real home cooking, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It isn't is. It? From all the bits and bobs that you've yeah. got. Yeah, I love it. So feel free, Julie, to share your, <laughs> you don't need to post them, just send them to me directly. Yeah, okay. Pictures of cheese, all bread, right. whatever. Yeah. And we'll stay tuned and see what happens next for you. Excellent. Thanks, Julie, Gary. Julie Goodwin, thank you so much. It's a pleasure and you have brightened my day. <laughs> thank you. And likewise. You will remember this, but Julie was famous for a puddle pie. And what it was, it was a disaster, but it tasted delicious, which is so much like how we all cook at home. It doesn't always work, but it tastes delish. Now, my mum was the same, and one of my favourite desserts was a lemon meringue pie. It was never quite the same, but it always tasted delicious. But what she always did well was lemon curd, which was the heart of the dish. So this is her recipe via me, and it's made in the microwave. It's pretty damn easy. In a bowl, 180 mils to 200 mils of lemon juice, plus the zest of one of the lemons. You whisk together five eggs in the lemon juice, and then you add 165 grams of sugar, and then you just dollop in 125 grams of butter, which is half a packet. Put it in the microwave, set it to six to eight minutes, and hit go. Wait for a minute, open the microwave, have a look, put it back on, and in another minute, open the microwave, maybe give it a little stir. And you cook it for that six to eight minutes until it's bubbly and cooked. Give it a whisk, it's done. It really is that simple. And trust me, you'll have your own puddle pie in next to no time. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Darcy Thompson.